Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. Justin Merrick says, and it's that reparations is not simply beneficial for African Americans. It is, um, it, it's a way we all can find healing. And I think that that's one of the, one of the most amazing things about the Christian moral life is that not only are we transformed by it, but our neighbor is benefited by it. And that's, that's part of the, part of the vision. Um, and one of the reasons that, well, we say this in the introduction, people are going to ask the question, why is a white dude and a Korean American dude, why are y'all writing this book on reparations? And we say that the reparations conversation has two sides to it. There's those um, who owe reparations and those to whom reparations are owed. And we feel like our part was to simply say the first part of that conversation, which is essentially an act of confession. And then we were trying to use our own our own lives to bring others to this place uh, and to bring them into this conversation. Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. Hi, I'm Paul Perot, and this week we're concluding a conversation Gabe had on the difficult topic of Christians and reparations for past racial sins. We started this conversation on last week's show. The previous episode is up available at MyFaithRadio.com on the Q Ideas show page. Otherwise, the full conversation is available to subscribers of the Q Media platform at QIdeas.org. Now, if you were listening last week, Gabe talked with Duquan, He's the pastor of Grace Meridian Hill in D.C. And Greg Thompson of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia, among other things. Together, they wrote a new book entitled Reparations, A Christian Call to Repentance and Repair. Also part of this conversation is African-American pastor Micah Edmondson, who is currently on staff at Christ Presbyterian in Nashville. Now, we fully admit this is a hard topic. But as our country continues to wrestle with the past sins of slavery and Jim Crow policies, plus the continued relational estrangement in our culture, in our churches, what can and should the church do? Those are the questions Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson are trying to deal with in their book. So let's continue to listen to this conversation. I love the bringing together this story with the Good Samaritan and how, as Christians, we just have this high responsibility to care about repair. We, we, we must care about restoration. It's got to be just part of the lens through which we see all of life, see our communities, see our neighbors, see need, see brokenness. And Micah, I want to bring you in at this point in the conversation. I know you've been listening to this conversation and you've you've been following along with the work that Greg and Duke wrote. And, and of course, Greg's a white man and Duke's an Asian American. And so um, there wasn't a black man that wrote this book. This was coming from an audience of, of authors that lived outside of perhaps the ones that you could perceive as benefiting the most from this argument. 
but out of their own understanding of this history and and really their place that they could write from and the audience that they could reach, they've brought this message to bear uh, in a very strong way. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, Micah, how helpful is a book like this uh, from your perspective? Oh, it's extremely helpful. Uh, it is, uh, it's hard to really quantify um, how helpful that it is, not just to me as a black man. Certainly it is helpful to me as a black man, but just to us as Christians in general. I think it would be a mistake to, to only think that African Americans are benefited from the conversation around reparations because uh, what we're really seeking to do is help to consider uh, our discipleship and in what ways can we can be conformed into the image of Christ, right? And so what a book like this is doing is it's actually helping us, equipping us to do the work of ministry, to walk more faithfully to our Lord uh, in, in all that he calls us to, to do. Um, as Presbyterians in particular, this, this book is actually equipping us to be pre- better Presbyterians. I mean, folks who have, uh, you know, sort of followed my, um, some of my work uh, knows I'm really fond of the confessions, uh, the, uh, the Presbyterian uh, confessions, the Westminster uh, standards, and, and what are called the three forms of unity, uh, which help to really lay out uh, Reformed orthodoxy. And, and, and they actually have uh, quite a bit to say about the issue of, uh, restitution and restoration, and so um, so a book like this is really helping us to put into practice what we confess together as Christians and uh, as Reformed Christians and as Presbyterians. And I know Greg, you and Duke, at the end of the book, I mean, you you put a whole emphasis on the call to repair and centering other voices, where we look at African Americans who've really been leading the way in helping educate us on what does this look like. Why was that so important? And give us maybe an illustration of of one of these leaders that you've uh, illustrated through their story, the way we can move forward towards repair. Well, I think what Micah said is really important in that he really is reflecting something that one of the African-American leaders that we cite in the book, a man named Justin Merrick, says, and it's that reparations is not simply beneficial for African-Americans. It is, um, it, it's a way we all can find healing. And I think that that's one of the, one of the most amazing things about the Christian moral life is that not only are we transformed by it, but our neighbor is benefited by it, and that's that's part of the part of the vision. Um, and one of the reasons that, well, we say this in the introduction, people are going to ask the question: Why is a white dude and a Korean American dude? Why, why are y'all writing this book on reparations? And that was the question that we heard a lot, and we talked about a lot before we even agreed to write it. And we say that the reparations conversation has two sides to it. There's those um, who owe reparations, and those to whom reparations are owed. And we feel like our part was to simply say the first part of that conversation, which is essentially an act of confession, an act of truth-telling, an act of acknowledgement. And then we were trying to use our own our own lives to bring others to this place uh, and to bring them into this conversation. But when we get to the conversation about how reparations should be used, how resources or, or access or these kind of things should be used, we feel like it's really important to defer to the wisdom and desire of African-American communities because that and that that really is actually one of the one of the most important things that distinguishes our vision of reparations from, say, typical philanthropic investment is that often in the philanthropic world, the, quote, white resource holder remains in control and reparations 
requires the giving up of control and trusting our brothers and sisters. And so in a classic example of this that you, uh, or an important example of this in my own life is Justin Merrick, who I just, to whom I just referred. He's the executive director of the Center for Transforming Communities in Memphis. And what he is doing is actually trying to work at the community level to, to increase wealth, to increase political and institutional agency through arts and culture and memorialization to tell the truth about the kind of central Memphis, um, midtown Memphis, where, where his work is often located in an orange mountain and these other neighborhoods. And so I think that if you look at people like we, we talk about in the book, Justin Merrick or Anasa Troutman or David Bailey or, or others, what you're seeing is African-American leaders who are working on the ground in this reparative effort along the very lines of truth, power, and wealth. And we, we really wanted to end the book by, you know, by drawing the reader's attention to those people so that we essentially step back and they step forward. And then our, our readers can essentially follow them in the work of repair. I mean, Gabe, if I could add to that, um, because I think it's an important point to underscore, it may stand out to readers in, in chapter seven when we get to the, the quote unquote practical section when, you know, by that point, everyone's asking, well, what shall we do? Um, having been thoroughly convinced right by the entire argument of the book, uh, we use African-American examples. And to some that might be head turning or uh, might seem um, not an obvious choice, but we wanted to model the importance of following black thought, black ideas and black leadership in shaping and framing what exactly we must do, especially in our local communities, uh, that this needs to be done in collaboration with, in conversation with, and in a sense, in submission to African-American leadership on the ground in our local spaces. What we weren't going to do was center all these uh, examples of white Christian institutions that are, yes, doing their best and doing it with integrity, but which are also subject to some criticism about ways in which perhaps they've done this or that. Uh, and so we wanted to center black practical examples, but also throughout the book, we wanted to model this as well. Uh, the way in which uh, the narrative that we present as far as our account of uh, history and white supremacist history in America, as well as uh, our theological account of restitution and restoration, uh, we leaned heavily on um, and wanted to center the theological reflections of and the historical accounts that have been written by African-Americans in generations prior to us. And so that it's an important value, priority of ours, and we hope that our readers also uh, follow suit in the same way. And Micah, um, I'd love for you to help us out here as we as we turn towards repair and that question of of how do well-meaning people who are getting aware they're becoming awakened to ways in which they might have complicity, or they're just they're just longing to be a part of the solution. And I want you to help us with some of the pitfalls that people maybe fall into when they have that very positive feeling that they want to be part of the solution, but they're not always equipped or educated on like how to most be helpful. So if, if you're helping a, a white Christian leader or somebody who maybe leads a congregation that's dominantly white, what, what are some of the pitfalls that you have noticed in the conversations you've led and the partners that you've worked with over time who care about this? What are, what are some of those mistakes that are easy to fall into if we don't approach this uh, correctly? Okay, thank you for asking. Uh, some of them are um, sort of, you know, um, idea type mistakes, and some of them are practice mistakes. One idea that we often will fall into, and I think it's 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 one of the biggest drivers of people's reticence about reparations in general, is the idea that justice is a zero sum game. 
if I make repair to one group, that means I am somehow diminished. And and that's that's an important idea to address, right? Because I think, again, a lot of the fear around this conversation has to do with people's belief that somehow they're going to be, um, you know, that somehow something will be taken away from them. Uh, so you, we've got we've to understand that justice is not a zero-sum game. Uh, actually, white folks themselves stand to benefit from, from the practice of repairing these past and current injustices um, that white folks actually have been defrauded of the truth. I think it's, that's an important category that, um, that's laid out in the book, these various different um, aspects of what has been defrauded. And, and, uh, and the entire church and, and white folks also have been defrauded of the truth. And so this is an opportunity to actually repair that sense of being defrauded, right, to help people to understand uh, who they are in Christ, how they are to rightly relate to their neighbor, and uh, how they are to stand uh, in relation to the ongoing legacy of past injustices. Right. So, uh, so that's that's one thing. Uh, another thing has to do with, um, you know, this is kind of the white savior complex. You know, that we're going to go in here, and we're going to we're going to repair these folks that have been injured, um, and oftentimes we don't understand the degree to which we can find ourselves um, trying to help people despite people. And, um, and I think what we've got to do is go into any situation as culturally curious, curious learners and coming alongside the work that the Lord has already been doing amongst those people. So one of the great um, suggestions that's made in the book is about coming alongside leaders who are already doing good work in the community. Right. So if, you know, one thing I would tell a pastor that's wondering, well, what do I do? I'd say, hey, look, find some some black church leaders uh, and, I, and 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 uh, just uh, just leaders within the community, whether or not some of them may not even be Christian, but who are doing good work to actually promote the flourishing of people uh, within the community and uh, find out what what's worked, what's not working and try to come alongside them. Um, and learn from them, right? And let and let them know that you're not trying to take over, right? Uh, do that in some practical ways. Uh, you know, those are some some important things. Recentering uh, voices that have been um, historically erased, right? So you've got to um, actually expand your imagination about who has biblical wisdom and who actually can be an authority within the church. And uh, that's, that's really important as well. So I would say to people, go buy some books, some theological uh, and, and, um, and social resources that are written by people of color to address this issue and sit at their feet and listen to them. And so you've got to expand your imagination. When we, uh, when we don't do that, we run the risk of uh, sort of continuing these negative dynamics. Um, and then also find ways to promote agency uh, for the people themselves, right? So what you want to do is you want to find ways to equip people and to empower them with the dignity of agency. Um, one of the things that we're doing uh, at Koinonia, the church I, I pastor here in Nashville, is uh, we have a, um, 
something called City Group, um, which is connected with the Christ Presbyterian Church churches. We are a multi. We're we're actually a multi-site church of Christ Presbyterian Church with a fourth location, and we're serving Bordeaux, Nashville, which is a, a community in Northwest Nashville, about eighty-three percent black. The City Groups is a, is a really a collective effort to come alongside uh, organizations, entities that are already doing great justice work out in, in the community. But one of them that we're working with is a, is a group called Corner to Corner, which was uh, founded by Will and Tiffany Acuff here in Nashville. And it's, it's a group that's dedicated to creating entrepreneurs from the African-American community and actually empowering them with the skills and the ability to create businesses here in, in Nashville. Right, and they've done this for hundreds of entrepreneurs now, and um, that's a wonderful. And so, what we, we what we're doing as a church is we're actually partnering with them. We're coming alongside and saying, "Well, how can we find ways to support this organization to come alongside and do everything we can to promote this?" You know, churches can find again organizations that are doing work like that that actually are working toward promoting agency. One of the things I love about Corner to Corner is they're about. They're about equipping people to uh, to have agency, you know. And and um, actually, Will and Tiffany Acuff, um, they are although white and of uh, uh, Latino, uh, uh, they actually are turning their organization over to an African American woman, right? And they they built this organization. They spent time in the community and uh, really done some great work to build this wonderful organization up that that does entrepreneurship and equips people but but they from the very beginning will and Tiffany said we wanted to turn our organization over to the community so that the community could actually have agency hmm. in this uh, in this organization yeah. and so I think I think we want to do things like that yeah it's a great story because I think so many times uh, you can fall into the trap of a church thinking they need to recreate the wheel or start new programs. And there's so many amazing things that already exist in our communities that are underfunded, undervolunteered, that just need people to come alongside and partner and be a part of of helping them reach all of their potential. And that's just a good best practice, a good, a good lesson. Um, I want to go to uh, Duke. Uh, you talk about the neglect of restoration in the book and, and this conversation around repair i think so many times in the church the the message that we needed to repent of of the sin of of racism came through loud and clear but then after that reconciliation was the next step and and a lot of people thought well, that that's enough like we're we're going to reconcile relationally but this book pushes it one step further to there's more to be done than just reconciliation. That's part of our Christian responsibility. But there can be this sense of people neglecting that and, and just saying, you know what, I've done enough, or I'm tired of the conversation, or I'm not responsible. Some of the things we talked about earlier with Greg. So what are some of these factors that play into people just neglecting it? They're hearing this message and they're like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to opt out. What, what are some of those reasons why they do that? Yeah, I mean, let me affirm the question, too, because, it, it, you know, r- racial reconciliation is something that, that uh, many Christians today are familiar with, and rightly so. This is straight from the heart of God to bring people that have formerly been wounded or been wounders uh, together 
in uh, Christian community, uh, Ephesians 2 and 2 Corinthians 5 and other places. Um, but I don't know that we've done it rightly. Uh, I don't know that we have actually done it to the extent that we need to as far as repenting fully uh, for historical wrongs, as far as telling the truth, uh, as far as confession. Uh, these are, uh, uh, to be sure, difficult, painful, weighty processes uh, that we need to go through as Christians. Uh, but part of what I think reparations does, though, is it forces us to a truer account of the damage that actually has been done, which, of course, is what we would expect of true reconciliation. It's not just a surface kumbaya getting along kind of a thing. It's not just mere harmony that we're after. It's actually a deeper solidarity that begins with the bearing of original wounds together. And that's why there's a sense in which it's true that reparations is a moral precondition to reconciliation uh, in the sense that uh, to build trust, to restore trust that's necessary for uh, reconciliation, we need to demonstrate to each other that we actually see the truth as it truly is, and we're willing to take costly steps uh, to actually repair the wrongs that have been done. This is what we teach to victims of abuse and abusers. This is the way that we deal with deep evils in society. But for some reason, when it comes to racial repair, we're far too quick to say what we just need to do is to be together, be unified. All, what we just need to do is reconcile. And the language is biblical, but the practice has not been fully biblical. And that's what we're calling people to. To your question specifically, though, I think because of the costliness of this work of reparations, I think uh, people are intimidated. I, I, I think most people, even when they hear the moral logic of reparations, and even when they see that it is biblical, still balk at the call because of what we can already perceive to be the potential cost to ourselves personally, to our communities, uh, we think it is costly, yes, uh, but we also feel like as Christians, uh, we should be more familiar with the idea of bearing enormous cost, especially in the face of the costliness of the thefts that have been committed in generations prior. And Greg, as, as a historian, well, I know you wouldn't call yourself a historian, but I know how much you've studied the history of this. You've also studied and, and you've written extensively on Martin Luther King and his work. Where do you plot us right now? I mean, 2021, in this journey towards reconciliation and repair towards equality, I mean, where, where do we sit? Are you hopeful about where we sit? Are you discouraged? Well, that's, that's a great question, um, and I'll answer it by way of analogy. Um, so, you know, from 1965, really beginning at the end of 1965, Martin Luther King entered into a crisis, um, and it was a crisis that lasted the, the, the rest of his life, where he didn't understand the future of the movement. The violence at Selma in 65, the rise of black power in 1966, the, the fracturing of civil rights alliances during that time, his marginalization, the, the federal government's rejection of him because of his opposition to the Vietnam War. It was a period of crisis in which he was having to rethink everything that he thought about what uh, the racial healing of America was going to take. And he ended up in 1967 saying, I've decided to stick with love <laughs> and expanded his horizons to not only race, but economics and also uh, violence and militarism in the United States. And but but it's important to understand that that commitment to a renewed effort really emerged out of a crucible of confusion. 
And I, I think that that's where a lot of people are right now, that we're in an analogous crucible moment and that we have decisions to make. Are we going to continue to try to heal a nation by um, circumventing the singular requirement of telling the truth about that nation and just going straight to reconciliation and pulpit swaps and, you know, and potlucks? Or are we going to say the Christian church in America has been complicit in um, and a beneficiary of one of the most like uh, consistently destructive regimes in history to African-Americans, to people of color? Are we going to say that? And are we going to say we're going to give of our resources, our reputations, our platforms, our financial life to repair that? Or are we not going to do that? And I really think that we have a decision to make because I do not believe that our talk about reconciliation and we can all just get along. And I do not think that, that there is a future for that, that conversation, apart from this particular work. And so where do I think we are? I think we're at a decision point. And I think what happens now for the future integrity of Christianity with respect to its evangelical expression is now fully on the table. I mean, it, it in truth has always been on the table, but we controlled the table. And so nobody, nobody got to see it, but we don't control the table anymore. And I think that's good. And I think right now we have a choice. Are we going to do what everybody knows we should do or are we not? And I think that that is that's where we are. Yep, that is where we are. Well, this is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. And that was Gabe's conversation with Duke Kwan, Greg Thompson, and Micah Edmondson around Duke and Greg's new book, Reparations, A Christian Call to Repentance and Repair. If you don't see yourself as a Zacchaeus who stole and thus are required to pay back, as citizens of the kingdom who want to see people restored and flourishing, Maybe your call is like that of the Good Samaritan who wasn't guilty of the crime but was responsible before God to do what he could. Again, a hard topic. And you might not agree with everything that's said, but hopefully you're still leaning into the discussion. That's what Q is all about. To stay curious, we've got to listen to what's being said. To think well, to consider and think about these issues from a biblical worldview and advance good, to actually engage in doing something to address the needs around us. So whether it's difficult topics like racial and ethnic healing or dealing with transgender ideologies or other cultural trends, that's what Gabe and his team are trying to do through events like the recent Q Summit or talks and other offerings on the Q Media platform at qideas.org. We hope we can be a resource to you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio. On behalf of Gabe, have a great week. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media.
Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.